The views and opinions expressed in this episode are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of Gwen and Mercy Academy High School, Sisters of Mercy, or any related affiliate. Welcome back to the Monarch Impact. My name is Autumn Kerger, and I am a senior here at Gwinnett. And I am Caitlin Fitzgerald Straub, class of 2001 and engagement coordinator for Gwinnett Force. And today we have the pleasure of interviewing Kelly Malott DeConcillis, who graduated from Gwinnett in 1999. Kelly, after graduating Gwinnett, went on to further her education from the Catholic University of America and holds a neuropsychology degree. After graduating, Kelly also worked at Microsoft under Bill Gates' research and development sector. Along with that, Kelly serves as the chairman of board of directors at the International Stability Operations Association. She has also served as chief operating officer at Special Aerospace Security Services, Inc., a woman's small-owned business in Virginia, supporting the intelligence community and U.S. government. Kelly holds a top-secret clearance and works as an exfiltration security expert, aka she gets people out of bad places. Without further ado, let me introduce you all to the amazing Kelly. Welcome, Kelly. While you were at GMA, you participated in a ton of clubs, and like we were talking about earlier, you participated in Glee Club. Did any of these student clubs impact your career path at all? Yeah, Autumn, absolutely. So I'll tell you, um, probably so from the the drama club, that was definitely a good precursor for going on CNN and Fox News and being comfortable in the audiences. And what's great about drama club is I think, you know, for someone who might not have necessarily been comfortable in her own skin is when you get on stage and those lights are on you, you don't really see anyone in the audience. And so you kind of take on these characters. And so I always call myself like an extrovert introvert, meaning, you know, at home, like I just want to be kind of like under the covers watching Hulu or Netflix, but then for work, I have to be extroverted. So it kind of gave me that outlet to be that extrovert person, but then kind of go back and do my own thing. So I think with SAD, I was really, really involved with SAD. To this day, it's something I'm really passionate about where I've seen so many people and colleagues get in such trouble, like with, you know, drunk driving or DUIs is that I actually don't drink at all and haven't for quite some time. So that's definitely impacted my life and the stories and people I met while being involved with SAD. And then Glee Club was really awesome uh, just because it was such a great, you know, unique group of girls. And this was before, as I was telling you, Autumn, earlier, this was before Glee Club was a show and cool and hip to be in. So it was really fun. And probably the last one, Science Club. You know, my background is in bio counterbioterrorism. And so learning the science and the chemical compounds and seeing what that's all about to then be able to study biosafety levels like Ebola and smallpox and all these different really hazardous different chemicals and weapons of mass destruction. That was something that was really interesting. And I think it really started there in science lab after school at 3.30. <laughs> That's incredible. Um, we want to get into the bioterrorism part for sure. But uh, were there any teachers or classes specifically, like was it chemistry class with Dr. Brenly or anything at Gwinnett that really stood out for you as a student? So I'll tell you, so for me, what really stood out was the 
people and the makeup of the teachers and the faculty, one teacher stands out and it may not necessarily be in the career path or even a study that I was even good at, which was history, but she really, really impacted me. Her name was Mrs. D'Angelo and she was a history teacher. And I will never forget because she was one of those teachers that everyone was like a little bit scared of. She was really, really tough, but fair. And I remember I had a cast on my arm and it was like that for like months at a time. I was getting laser surgery on my hand at the time I had a birthmark and I'm actually in the process of writing a children's book called My Purple Hand. And it's a story about kids who have birthmarks. But anyway, so while I had this wrapping on my hand and I couldn't write, she would go into the test with me verbally. And for someone that people were so scared of, I would say an answer and she'd be like, Kelly, do you want to think about that answer again? Like, I know you said answer B, but I feel like C or D might be looking good. And we just ended up having this really amazing, cool bond that it really stayed with me. And if you ask anyone that works with me today or works for me today, they will probably say the same characteristics, which is like, Kelly is tough, but fair. And I really think I got that from Mrs. D'Angelo. That is fantastic. So Autumn, for some background, Mrs. D'Angelo was also the disciplinarian. Yes. yes. So this is why everybody was afraid of her. (laughs) But she was a great history teacher. I agree. Yes. But she wasn't fluffy. Like she was not fluffy or huggy. But then like, again, I saw her in her element. I talked with her about her husband, like, and you got that layer. And I think, you know, again, going back to like, you know, you go and, and what kind of catapults you into certain levels in your career, you know, becoming like a human profiler and understanding that people are onions and they have different layers. And that really stood out to me is that she had the one persona that she was that disciplinarian. But then as you kind of take the layers down is that she just was this warm person inside that like genuinely wanted to help someone. That's yes. pretty cool. That's just amazing. And I know there are some teachers here at Gwen, it's still that like, especially have impacted me kind of the same way, even though they're very tough and don't like sugarcoat things. They're like the lessons they teach, like I feel like carry so much more importance. And it's really, it's really important. Did your transition from Gwinnett and those experiences, how did they impact you when you went to college and like started at the Catholic University of America? Sure. Well, one, it was very interesting going to school and there were boys in my class. That was, that was wild to me. I didn't, you know, just being in a uniform for, I mean, I went to Gwinnett elementary as well. So for, you know, over like 15 years plus of my life had been in the uniform. So showing up, you know, to, to school, I didn't really know what to wear. I wore sweatpants every day, which was kind of interesting. And people didn't know why I was wearing sweatpants every day, but I just had zero fashion sense. So that was on a fashion note. I know that's not why you were asking that, but I will tell you is Again, I really focused on the people. And this is something that like the academia side would probably poo-poo, right? Is that for me, like it wasn't necessarily about the grades. It was more about being like a well-rounded student, right? So I wasn't like an A-plus student by any stretch of the imagination. And I did terrible on my SATs, like absolutely terrible. But I had all these clubs that I was involved with. I genuinely like loved to learn. Just testing was really hard for me. And so I was nervous about even getting into like a good school. And so when I went to to college, I think I ended up just kind of honing in on people that had kind of similar backgrounds to me, but also really accepting of diverse backgrounds and wanting to learn more about them. And I think 
you know, Gwennett just gave you like a bigger heart. Like when you left high school, I think you had a better understanding of people that were less fortunate than you that didn't have maybe a similar upbringing. And so that was something that really stayed with me. And so in college, you know, I did do like the extracurricular activities of like, you know, feeding the homeless and doing all the things that I did in high school. I didn't just kind of cap out at high school. And so those are some of the things. Did you find it was a similar environment? I know that I too went from Gwinnett to St. Joe's, so Catholic school to a Catholic school. Was that appealing for you that it would be a similar circumstance? So, you know, it was interesting. So Catholic was my second choice. My first choice was American University. And when I had gone to American, I applied for the International Studies Business Program. I had no idea it was one of the hardest programs at American to get into. 97% of the students in that group um, were from overseas because it was an international program. So everyone Mm. from overseas was getting in. And I remember the second one was Catholic. And I remember going to my mom at the time. I'm like, I just don't know. Like, it's such a smaller school and I really want a big school. And I'm telling you, like, if it's meant to be, it's meant to be. And having a smaller school was so incredibly amazing. And I think there is like a misconception, like you go to the Catholic University of America and everyone thinks there's like priests and nuns, like in all of your classes and everyone is going to the convent, you know, and that's just not the case. Their big program was theater. So a lot of my friends in my dorm were like theater majors, architect majors and studio all day long. So that was actually a really cool process, but no, it was actually not very similar to the Gwynedd lifestyle, if you will, and teachings. It had the theology, it had biomedical ethics, which I really loved and, and kind of figuring out that delicate balance. And they had theology classes, which were fantastic. But again, it was a different setting in a more like real world in the city and something that I really just have friends to this day from. When you were starting to look at colleges and kind of seeing where you wanted to go. Did you know what you wanted to do from the start? Did you know this was kind of the career you wanted to do? So it's funny. So no, when I started out, I had to write letters to a lot of the schools like Villanova, LaSalle, Catholic, American. And it was a lot of them had like, where do you see yourselves 10 years from now? And I remember I still like have the letter and it was talking about as I sit in my office I think it was American Express as the CEO of American Express, just getting off of a jet from Japan. So I was running American Express 10 years from there. And I had just finished because this is when Oprah, if you remember Oprah, she was having a book club. And I talked about just getting done my Oprah book club tour on the validity of SATs because I was very passionate. Out of a 1600, I think I scored like a 972. It was very dismal on the scoring. And I was trying to prove though in my book that you can't judge someone just on standardized scores. Like I just wasn't a good test taker. I was a good student, but I just like bombed every standardized test. So I really wanted to go what I thought at the time was in international business. That was something that I really wanted to do. But then, you know, life things happen. And I, uh, something that was really significant and life altering was my mom got very, very sick freshman year in college and she had a brain tumor. And so I ended up going back from school and staying with her for a semester to take care of her. She was terminal and it really changed my life. I ended up meeting a neuropsychologist at University of Penn who studies the psychology of someone, you know, with brain, body, and behavior. And she truly changed my life. And so I went back to school. I met with the Dean and I said, I want to go into your neuropsychology program. 
And she goes, sweetie, you don't have the grades. You're never going to get in it. And I remember that because I will tell you, Autumn, like the advice I would give to girls in high school is, is let those no's like push you even further. When someone tells you you can't do it, like for me, that's all I needed to hear because I wanted to do everything in my power, like to prove her wrong. And I think at that stage, you also realize like how short life is. I was 19 years old when I lost my mom and best friend. And so I really wanted to like do that for her. And so that's what I did. And I ended up graduating with honors and speaking at our ceremony at, at school at graduation and really kind of changed the trajectory. So I always tell people you can go for majors. I was international business. Um, I came in with that and, you know, a minor in uh, Spanish and French. So my whole days were in different languages. And then I ended up graduating with neuropsych. So it just really depends uh, on, on what kind of is your passion and what drives you. That's incredible. I got chills. I don't know yeah. if you just got chills. I mean, you were the, you spoke at graduation. Your mom must be so proud. So your career path has kind of not been linear by any means whatsoever. What inspired you to do your work with Microsoft? Sure. So I kind of like when people are like, Kelly, your career is kind of like all over the place. And I said, I'm kind of like the Forrest Gump with careers. Like I never realized I would be in these places, but I just somehow ended up and it ended up in them. And a lot of the times, you know, it's like really you that did it, but let's be honest, like a good part of it is like luck and timing. And mm -hmm. so um, right out of school, I had ended up working at Washington Hospital Center, which was a level one trauma center, which means like all the main like ER, like emergencies um, can be done there. And so it was after 9-11 and I really wanted to study like emergency preparedness, disaster response. And with the neuropsychology background is study like the psychological and physiological aspects of first responders. So when you come into a hospital setting and there's over 250 people coming in, that's called a mass casualty incident, an MCI. So what do you do, right, psychologically with the first responders? How do you engage with them? And we would have stressors on them and pulsometers, and we'd figure out kind of what was going on with them. When we were doing that, I was part of a small startup group, and that small startup group created data algorithms that we were testing and trending based off of their levels of anxiety and so forth. And so long story short, a few months later, a guy named Bill Gates came on by and ended up buying our little small startup that was inside of Washington Hospital Center. And so it was myself, two ER docs, and then about... 17 nerds, I say, and I'm part of like the nerds group on that, by the way. So I always say be nice to nerds. It was this really, really cool experience because we're this small startup that just got purchased by Microsoft, but we didn't get pushed into the giant Microsoft company. We got put in one of five groups that Bill Gates kind of had his hand on. And so we were in the research and development arm. So we kind of had unlimited budget, unlimited resources, and we could go and create our technologies from a medical IT perspective. And then I started working on the military health side and using technology within the military. And that's how I started getting into that side of the house. That's really cool. That's, yeah. And that is incredibly fortuitous. Like you said, like you just were at the right place at the right time. <laughs> right place, right time. And I will tell you what Gwen had really like helped prepare me for is that being in an all girls school, like you don't know the difference, right. In the sense of like, you can do anything you want. You're with all females. Mm -hmm. And so 
when I went in and still to this day, I'm typically the only like female in the room in national security. There's not a whole lot of chicks. Let's just be honest, which is why I'm such a big advocate for like young women, like in the national security sector, but it Gwened, like I, I didn't know any difference. So I didn't think that it was a big deal for me to be in the room. And at Microsoft, I was the only female. I was always the youngest, but Microsoft was pretty welcoming of all of those things, which was fantastic. So that was great. Before we move on to the next question, I do want to ask what your research with the mass casualty uh, incidents and the first responders, what did it turn up? Like, what did you find from the data? Oh, that's a good one. So what was really interesting was, is that we assumed that all of the psychological stressors were going to happen inside the hospital. And we stressed these people out. We had helicopters coming in. I was with a bullhorn yelling. We had people with makeup and moulage that looked like they had burn, like burn victims and, you know, chemical and biological. We had decontamination showers. We brought FBI in. I mean, we had everyone out there. And again, we thought it was all in the brick and mortar where people would be breaking down. And interestingly enough, it was outside where people would have to label, you know, the, the patients as black, red, green, or yellow. So meaning green, they were good to go. They're fine. They're going to make it yellow. Like they've got some wounds, but some wound care, you'll be fine. Some triage, um, red, definitely like mission critical need to be seen ASAP. And then black was they've expired. They're, they're gone. And so what we saw was, is we had nurses and doctors who see death every day in the ER. And they were literally like breaking down outside because they had to label people as red or black when any other day, they probably would have been a yellow, but they had to figure out there's so many of you, there's 200 plus of you. I have to go for the greens and yellows. Like I can't save the reds anymore. And that's where people were breaking down. And so when we saw that, like visceral effect on people and people crying. Um, we knew that we had to focus our, our human profiling and psychological efforts on triaging outside and creating curriculum around that to help with those types of things. That's really incredible. I mean, I, I couldn't see why, yeah, you go into a life-saving profession and you're grappling with the fact that you can't save everybody at this point and you have to prioritize. That's exactly it. And look, it's, it's something that you think that clinicians are trained on, but when you put them in a real life scenario, it's very similar to, you know, in the counter bioterrorism world. So I will show up in a decontamination suit and that means you're zippered up and you literally like can't breathe if you like unzipper, you know, your face mask. And so you are inside a suit and it is literally like 135 degrees inside your suit. But if you undo your, you know, your suit and you're in a fentanyl lab, you're dead. Mm -hmm. So it's one of those things, like it's all mental, you have to, and that's why we have courses and, you know, things that I've worked with in design to actually help with the psychological piece of that. So you've got to kind of talk yourself through it. Like you're going to be fine and have different, you know, methods to do that. I mean, there are so many challenging parts of your career, just from like kind of what you've mentioned in the past few minutes, but what is the most challenging aspect of, of your career, would you say? Most challenging, I would probably say, oh, that's a tough one. That's like, you got me, Autumn. That's a good one. Top three, top, top three. three. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, listen, it, it, it is, it, I, I will tell you this, is that the challenging piece is I do have a difficulty saying no. And when I, when I meet, what I mean by that is, is when you are dealing, my background is in what's called exfiltrations and repatriations. And exfiltration is a really fancy term in essentially getting 
people out of bad places. That's what I do. Um, but I think a challenging piece of that is when you have to tell someone, I don't think I can get you out of here. And that was a great example in Afghanistan um, in August of last year is we had, you know, girls from American University of Afghanistan. We had U.S. You know, citizens. We had families that worked with us, the U.S. military overseas, and they wanted to get out of that country. And it was extremely difficult to do that. So part of your job is never leaving anyone behind. And that was the first time in my life, in my career, that I actually had to leave people behind. And so that was a really something that hit me very, very hard. And it's tough because a big part of my job outside of that Afghanistan exfiltration is I have to keep it all to myself. And so in when you're in national security or in what's called um, here in the DC area, the intelligence community, it's those three letter agencies, right? Is you can't really talk to anyone about it per se. And it's definitely when people say like, well, Kelly, if you do something really cool, don't you want to talk about it? I was like, well, if I wanted applause, I would have joined the circus. So there's that piece, but I will tell you probably one of the most challenging things, and it was more in my thirties, I'm 41 now, but it was just, um, being taken seriously. So I would walk into a room, right. And it'd be full of men typically in like military uniforms, those generals, those types of things. And they're just looking at me like, who is this pop tart about to run a meeting? And I, and I literally had, and I say that because I actually had a guy say that to me once, like, who's this Pop-Tart? And I said, listen, this Pop-Tart is going to get you out of this country. I'm going to save your life. So why don't you be quiet and get in the trunk and we're going to keep on going. So those are just the examples of, I think, you know, being a strong female is a very delicate, delicate balance and tightrope in um, my profession, at least. But I think anyone's profession, honestly, is if you're too tough, you're thought of one way. And then if you're too soft and you show a little bit too much emotion, then you're considered like a pushover or a marshmallow. So it's something that, you know, when people ask me, you know, Kelly, like who helped you in your career? I would love to say like women were amazing to me in my career, but that would just be a total lie. Like women were terrible to me, like terrible. And I really want to change that narrative on that. I want women to like lift each other up. You don't need to be jealous of other women. You don't need to bring them down. I was very fortunate. Like my mentors were like men and they were typically much older, but they saw something in me that they didn't have to prove anything. You know, they had already were well-established in their careers. And so they just wanted to help me out. And so that's just one thing I would throw out there. And now that I'm, you know, I think I always say in my twenties, I was just trying to like, you know, get that career recognition. And I was the first one in the office, last one out. I really, really focused on my career in my twenties and gave up a lot of my life while my other friends were getting married and having kids in my thirties. I focused on having a family, got married, had three kids within two years. And if you do the math, there's a set of twins in there. Um, and so my thirties was really getting my family and personal life together and now in my 40s, it's really exciting because I don't really care as much what people think about me. Mm -hmm. And I'm just kind of living in my own skin. And so that's been really amazing across the board. That is really, really amazing. And you were talking about um, your family and like, obviously you have three kids and a set of twins, you just said. So how do you balance your career life with your family life? Uh, I remember doing um, a podcast for, I think it was for Fox radio and it was called like, we're momming. And the interviewer asked me this and I just was really honest. And I said, listen, 
I was like, I believe you can have it all, but I do not think you can have it all at one time. Like something has got to give. I give the example of, I remember when my twins were like three years old and then Adeline was like six months or four months. And I really wanted to go to the Halloween parade. And so I went to the Halloween parade dressed up as T-Rex as a giant dinosaur. I forgot a change of clothes and I had to go to the Pentagon (laughs) right afterwards. And no joke, I did a briefing as T-Rex, like for all these generals, like the Pentagon, which you would think is like this huge embarrassing moment. And I just kind of owned it. I didn't apologize. I just went on and I was like, we're going to go ahead and start. And people are staring at me. I'm like, yep. And uh, this is T-Rex. But I think people, they see when you come into a room, they expect one thing. And then they see like, oh my gosh, she's a human. She's a mom. She's a wife. Like I'm not just this like hardcore individual that typically they would see in either business suits or tactical pants or a decontamination outfit. And so to me, I think that was really interesting, but you know, something I think has to give if you're crushing it in your personal life, like then typically, you know, your professional life is going to, you know, give way a little bit. And if I'm, you know, really doing well professionally and I'm staying late at work, then I'm like missing my kids. So to answer your question directly, am I going to be the PTA president? No. And that's okay. I know I have lots of mom friends that do like the crickets and they're up late at night doing like graphics on their kids. You know, like my kids get like bags with like a big heart on it and that's it. But that's my way and love language of saying, I love you. And I'm okay with that, but I still go and I see them and I go into their class, but yeah, I'm not the lunchroom mom, but I'm okay with that. That's important that you manage to strike that balance. And I'm sure your kids understand it too, because you're a rock star in the workplace. Like oh. I, I want to talk more about the exfiltration in Afghanistan and how, what your role exactly was and what you did and who you paired up with whom and the whole process. Sure. Absolutely. So for exfiltrations, something that again, like my own husband didn't even know what I did like leading up to Afghanistan. And then it was one day cause I'm pretty low key about everything. And he goes, Kelly, were, were you on the news today? Cause like I had people from work, like tell me you were on CNN. I was like, Oh yeah. He's like, when did you go to the studio? I'm like, no, I just did it here in the office at the house. And so, um, Afghanistan, uh, So again, this is the background. I I do this for a living, right? And I believe there's very few of us out there and there's a handful of us. So I believe if you have a certain skill set, and the more news outlets I saw and people started reaching out saying, Kelly, like we could really use your help. We have, you know, students that are stranded, that are female, that are being surrounded by the Taliban, their passports are gone. We need to get them out. I had family members that got my number somehow. And so I just kind of made a conscious decision that I'm going to keep my day job and work during the day. And then at night, I'm going to volunteer my time to get these people out of Afghanistan. So this wasn't even through Special Aerospace Security Services or SASE. This is okay. No. So this was just a, this was a volunteer effort. So a lot of people think like, oh, she got paid for. I'm like, yeah, no, I, people pay me good money to get them out. But this was, yeah, this was all volunteer. And what I think was really cool, that was really special about just coming from an all girls Catholic school is that it was me and two other soccer moms that do exactly what I do. And so each night we'd put the kids to bed and you have to remember it's the middle East. So 
it's, you know, it's several hours ahead. So you, you working at night is daytime for them. And so the office that I'm sitting in right now, I would have blueprints of the city of Kabul laid out on my desk. And then we would have routes of where we would, you know, get the girls or get the family members that we were working with all, you know, with satellite phones and geolocations, moving safe houses with different families. And so that's really what we did. I will tell you an interesting piece though, it, talking about people saying no to you and then just kind of catapulting you even further. When we had gotten our group to the gate to open, um, Department of Defense and Military Operation was in front. They were taking orders from the White House and they said, Kelly, we can't let you guys in. I said, we just went through eight gates and the eight gates you know, are extremely hard and difficult to get through. It's a lot of violence and so forth. And so I said, fine. So I called the White House and I explained to them the situation and they were like, Kelly, there's nothing we can do. Like you're kind of stuck. And so I knew that CNN was on every single TV screen at the White House and every office and in the Senator's office. And they had been reaching out to me, the network. And I kept always saying like, no, I'm not interested. And so I called them back up. I said, I'll do your interview now. But I said, one condition is that you let me bring president of American University of Afghanistan on with me. And we make this about the girls and not about me. And chills. I'm getting chills, Kelly. Yep. And so that's what we did. And I will tell you, like, it then just kind of, again, went from there. So when we went on CNN, then Fox News was calling. And then when we were on Fox News, then Washington Post was calling to do an article on the fact that we were leaving these girls from American University to just die at the hands of the Taliban. I mean, you have to think, and I, I use the girls, but there were other families and personnel that you know I was working with, but specifically these young girls, I mean, these were girls that were studying at a Western education, you know, um, environment. And so those were being obviously targeted the most from the Taliban. And so trying to get them out was like mission critical. So I was pretty passionate about it. It was also the same week as my twins first week of kindergarten uh, orientation. So I'm in like parent teacher conferences. I haven't slept. You know, I've got like bags right. under my eyes, uh, but it was something uh, that I was beyond passionate about that you just sometimes, and this is where I think the whole mercy spirit comes in is that you sometimes can't just be a bystander anymore. You have to kind of go into the fire, go into the fight. And if there are people that need your help and you are able to do that, like it's your calling, like, how can you say no? Or how can you just stand by? And I couldn't. And so I didn't. That's really cool. I mean, not a lot of people are like able to do that, um, especially all of the things you have done. I'm just like, don't even know what to say. <laughs> so many things. Do you know, do you have an estimate of how many people you were able to get out? So a total um, with just, you know, uh, families and and when I say allies, I mean, people that worked directly, you know, with us in like the prisons where Al Qaeda and the Taliban would be imprisoned. And so those were like really high threat targets um, for the Taliban around like 400 people in total. And we got them through all different types of ways. So in the intelligence community, it's called tradecraft. And so that can be certain things, but, you know, creating different cover stories for the people that I was working with and families, so we'd have different cover stories. We would, if there was a female, we would sometimes dress them up as a male so they could get through the city limits, you know, appropriately and undetected. So there's all different types of unique things that we did to get them where they needed to be. That's really cool. Are you telling me that the show Homeland is kind of accurate? Did you watch that show? I didn't. Okay, no. you should. If I don't know, I you will. can stream it anywhere. It was my favorite, but it is. It sounds a little bit accurate. 
Oh, you wouldn't be the first person that said, so when that came out, that was actually funny. So Carrie, who like me has like blonde hair and right. all those things. And when that came out, I was like, oh, this is not going to be good, but it's a very, very good show. But I will tell you, if you are looking for a good show that is about the intelligence community, the best one and most accurate is actually the Americans. And it's okay. on, it's on FX with Carrie Russell from Felicity. If you watched ever the show long, long ago called Felicity, I highly recommend. So that and Jack Ryan only season one, not season two okay. would be something that would be very accurate. I would say. Okay. And, and well, Homeland is to a point to an extent. <laughs> got it. Well, you serve as chief operating officer at special aerospace security services. That is a lot to say. It's a mouthful, right? <laughs> it really is. Oh my gosh. Could you elaborate on what you do and just kind of like take me through a day in your shoes? Sure. So that's why we ended up calling it sassy. So it just made it a lot easier. And the fact that it's a women-owned small business. I say women-owned, women-dominated because literally it's all women there. It's like, you know, two to one ratio. I mean, I think we have just a handful of guys that, that work at our company, but what's great about Sassy is, is that I had met my current boss, who's the president and one of the co-owners of this, you know, women-owned small business. And we work in the intelligence community and supporting them on all different types of efforts, everything from cybersecurity to counterintelligence, to counterterrorism, counterbioterrorism, exfiltration, which is kind of what I talked about, but you look at our website, you won't see a whole lot about it. I met my boss at a little place called Langley in Virginia. And we met and it was, I had invited him to a, a conference that I was working at as a nonprofit. And I invited him to something that I didn't show up to because I ended up having a stroke literally that day. Oh my God. So poor guy, I'm like, Hey, like, you know, we have a lot in common. Why don't I invite you to be my guest? And then I, I don't even show up, but I tell you this because it's a really interesting backstory on how I met and came into this. And again, everything happens for a reason. I've always worked for like really big, you know, corporations or big government contractors. And there's a lot of hierarchy and red tape and you kind of get lost in the fray. Sometimes you even lose that sense of mission. And I was driving to work one day. My husband was traveling. I just dropped my three little kids who were all under two at the time. Twins were two and Adeline was six months. And I was driving and ended up starting to see black spots and my arm went numb. And as a training piece, I used to train people down at Fort Bragg. So all of like the SEAL team folks or Delta forces, those are military groups. I would train those guys and gals on how to gain an extra couple seconds of consciousness doing certain techniques. So meaning like if you feel like you're going to pass out, go to a cold air conditioner to blow cold air on your face, start singing a song or like ABCs that has like a certain rhythm to it. And it will keep you awake just for a couple extra seconds. So I didn't know I was having a stroke, but as I was driving, I knew I'm going 70 miles an hour and there's cars all around me. So I got to figure this out. And so I applied all of those things that I used to teach and train others on. I just never knew I'd use it for myself. And so what I did was I ended up looking at traffic and seeing like, okay, the car next to me is going 65 miles an hour. This one's going 55, this one's going 60. And then everything went black. And I ended up moving the car three lanes over, passed out for a bit, woke up. I still thought, I'm like, maybe I just need a banana or something and I'll be fine. I couldn't see out of my left oh my eye. God. I went to work and then long story short, I ended up in the hospital and, you know, neurosurgery ICU for several days and found out I had this rare blood clotting disorder and was hemorrhaging in my brain. And I lost the eyesight in my left eye permanently. But I say all of that not to 
feel sorry for me because I'm like a pirate now with one eye, but it's because, you know, these things happen. And I literally had this moment as I was sitting in the neuro ICU and they're like, Hey, Kelly, like you're bleeding in your brain. We don't know where it's coming from. So we can't give you anything to stop it because it might make it worse. If we give you blood thinners, you'll bleed even more. So we're kind of like in a holding pattern, but you should get your affairs together. And that for me was a huge life-changing moment, like huge. It like literally stops you in your tracks. Like money's not important. How big your house is, what you have, you know, all of those things just went by the wayside. And when I got better and I say, when I got better, it took several months to learn how to drive again, how to get my speech back, how to just do like executive cognitive functioning again. And I still have issues to this day. But what I will say is, is that I really work-wise, I want to do something different. And so that's when I went over to Sassy. It was this small niche group that was doing really cool things, but on a smaller scale, they got to kind of pick what they wanted to do. And I realize work is such a big part of your life if you are a working mom. So you might as well enjoy what you do and, and let that drive you. And so exfiltration, that's something that really was passion for me and, and getting people out of bad places and seeing them come out on the other side. So if I could dedicate myself to that and the company, and so that's what I do. And that's why I know that was like the longest answer ever, but I just, that's the background, honestly, of how it started is going from this big company to a smaller women-owned business. And it was really like, because of a life-changing incident. And it's been amazing ever since. They're so good with the fact that I have three little kids and no one looks at me weird when I leave at four to go to flag football or swim lessons or soccer or ballet or anything like that. So I encourage young women to make sure you find your place where you are celebrated and accepted. And it's not looked down upon for having a life outside of work because work can't just be your life. You have to have things outside of that, that make you want to go to that next spot and and aspire to be whoever you want to be. How many of the women that you work with at SASE were involved in the exfiltration that you were volunteering? I, I'm assuming there was an overlap. Actually, wasn't. So no. just, to be, just to be honest, so so when I say exfiltrations, it's usually a handful of people in exfil. It's not, I think that's kind of like a big like misconception is that people think there's teams and teams of people. It's usually like a handful. And there's a reason for that because what's different from an exfiltration versus like an evacuation. Evacuation is very public, right? So I remember doing an evacuation during the Japan tsunami in 2011, I think it was. I had to evacuate like six different military health hospitals as the tsunami was coming in. People know about that. Exfiltrations, your whole goal is to get in quickly and quietly and then leave. Mm -hmm. So we keep the group very, very small for a reason. So my bosses knew what I was doing, but really no one else in the company did. And we're a small company. We're like under 50 employees. And so um, it was really the network that I have. And so I tell a lot of young women, I said, find your network, find your people, whether it's a nonprofit group, whether it's a mentoring piece. And that group were were the people that I ended up working with that I had never met before in my life. But I was like, oh, you're a logistics person. Okay, well, I'm going to have you come into this effort because I need a plane. And you are able to kind of figure out FAA requirements and landing permits and country clearances. And so I had someone do that. So again, it's all about your network, right? That's that's crazy. And I was just wondering if I could kind of go back to... If you could explain a little bit more of like your background in bioterrorism and exactly like what that is. 
Sure. So as I mentioned, when I first started off, I was an emergency preparedness disaster response right after 9-11. And then I ended up going more into that like medical informatics side, which is where Microsoft came in. But really, as I started moving towards the government side and military health, I worked for about 10 years with Defense Health Agency. Defense Health Agency is the military health arm of Department of Defense. So all the military hospitals around the world, about 60 of them, all of the, they're called FOBs, FOBs, Forward Operating Bases, overseas in Iraq, Afghanistan, all downrange and really not so great places. I typically managed their clinical and medical services. And a lot of times what would come up specifically in parts of Africa was Ebola or infectious diseases. So what was really important to figure out with the adversaries, right? The bad guys is figuring out what do they want to use to weaponize certain things. So Ebola, anthrax. So that was something that we had to figure out. And I worked in the biodefense sector at the time. And so the biodefense sector is, is figuring out like, okay, so you have Ebola. Well, how could you weaponize it? Weaponizing Ebola, you can take someone who has it, put them on a plane to the US, have them sit at JFK airport for two hours, and you've infected hundreds, if not thousands, and then figure out a nice airport hub and let them travel all across the US. The same goes for smallpox or monkeypox, which is what we see right now coming in the Upper East Coast in the New York area, right, with CDC and tracking that. With, with COVID, people are much more familiar right now with a lot of the terminology that I've used for years. But I remember in December of 2020, being in a briefing and explaining to people, you know, I'm kind of concerned there's this there's this uh, epidemic, and I know it's just an epidemic right now. It's not a pandemic, but an epidemic that I believe is like really encroaching on the West Coast. And it's a part of the SARS family, and it, and it was COVID. And they're like, oh, Kelly, you're just overreacting. You're just, you know, Jane Calamity and just always. And again, emergency preparedness people were, were the last on the budget line, you know, for government because people don't want us until you need us, right? No one wants to do training. No one wants to learn about the what ifs, but that's what, you know, counter bioterrorism is, is that you have to think of every single thing of the what ifs. One example I will give you is anthrax testing in the metro system in DC. And so I did that about, oh gosh, maybe 15 years ago. And what we would do is we would test like a spoonful of, you know, uh, anthrax, put it, and again, this was simulated, of course, but put it in the, the red line at the time and see how it would go with all the different spores and if it was airborne and we would see how many people would get infected in a certain amount of time. What we learned was is that specific red line, which actually led right to Catholic University, wasn't well ventilated. So everyone on the the train would be infected within a matter of seconds versus a different with a different line that had more of an HVAC system. So like an air conditioning system, but it just didn't have it because it's much older. So those are the types of testing that we would do, at least the ones that I can talk about. But uh, that was always fascinating to me is kind of come up and sit on a whiteboard and figure out all the things that could go wrong and bad and then figure out like a mitigation plan for them. That's super cool. That really is. And that was very useful that you had all that background coming up like December, 2019, right? Exactly. That was, that was an interesting, that was an interesting meeting. People later were like, yeah, Kelly, I feel really bad about that meeting. I'm like, it's all right. It happens guys. (laughs) All right. So 
You have worn a lot of hats and have been involved everywhere, but you're also chairman of the board of directors at the International Stability Operations Association. What does that entail? Sure. So I've been on the board, it's called ISOA for about five years now, and I was chairman last year. And I will tell you, so what we do is we represent all government contractors, which consists of over 150 companies that work in high threat, remote, austere environments, meaning throughout Middle East, Africa, like typically war zones. And we serve as their advocate to the government. So for example, in Afghanistan, about 70% of the people in Afghanistan were government contractors versus military. So we really are the complement there. We're the eyes and ears on the ground. So when something's going on as far as their safety, um, they're not getting what they need, compensation, like we as a nonprofit 5013C, we will go to Capitol Hill and advocate for them. We will advocate for like, you know, we need more security or we need better housing for our contractors there. These are the people that are guarding our embassies all around the world. And so we are the voice for government contractors that are typically kind of in the dark and behind the scenes, but really are the ones with the boots on ground. So it's something that I'm really passionate about because I believe that people should have a voice and and those typically do not. What I like to do is at least have two uh, nonprofits that I'm intimately involved with and I don't really go over two, but I just started uh, and accepted a board position this morning, actually. Thanks with another group that I'm really, really uh, excited about. And it's called Pause of Honor. And it means exactly what I said, pause, like dog paws. And it supports all of the working dogs, which are the canines that work for U.S. military law enforcement. And when they retire, we take care of all their medical bills for the rest of their life. And it's an amazing cause. And it's something I really believe in. They are the people and the dogs and their handlers are the ones that are on the front lines, right? So when you go to an embassy gate, the dog will be a bomb dog and goes around and sniffs it. They're the first line of defense. And so giving them the best retirement life possible. And so it's something I'm really proud of. And I think GMA really helped me want to give back, right? We talk about like the mercy spirit and giving back. Being involved in nonprofits is something that's important to me because I think you have to give back. You can't just take, take, take um, in your life. And especially if you're successful, you should be able to to share the wealth and your knowledge and skill set and shine the light on organizations that could use your platform. Definitely. And kind of coming back to Gwana and the Mercy Spirit, would you have any advice for our current Gwana students or even your younger self? My gosh, my younger self. So I will tell you, Autumn, I was the most awkward teenager known to man. You think these glasses I have on now are big? I had, I will just tell you, Autumn, I had daytime headgear, which I think has been outlawed. Um, And so the daytime headgear is like the braces where it has like the band around the back. So I had that full disclosure. I had Coke bottle glasses, like really thick glasses. I was uber, uber tall and uber, uber skinny. So very, very awkward. And I will, you know, friends for me, I wasn't the kid that was like super popular. And what was great um, about Gwened is that I was really accepted across the board. And I think that that really went a long ways. And it taught me to just be kinder to others just because they're different and, and don't let certain things like dictate who you are, right? Like, with friends, for example, like the friends that I had, which was, you know, maybe two or three friends that I had in high school, 
they are still my best friends today. Like my one best friend, Patrice is literally the godmother to my daughter. And so those friendships last forever. But what I would tell my younger self is to be a little bit kinder to, to me and know that, you know, this too shall pass. These awkward stages will pass. Um, when you think that, uh, the standardized test, which I brought up in the beginning of this podcast, right, is to never give up on yourself. And if you genuinely believe in something and someone tells you no, just look at that as a pass or an accelerant to keep going even further and faster and harder and don't give up. And so that would be my advice to the young girls at Gwinnett is to really never give up. And it's okay not to know everything. You don't have to know everything to to get by in life. And it's okay to raise your hand and ask for help. And it's also okay from a mental health standpoint too, is to say, I need to hit the pause button. I need to take some time for myself. So self-care I think is really important too. I think that's some really important points. Great advice for anybody, not even just high school students. Yeah. Kelly, it was a pleasure having you on today you're crushing it. You're balancing it. Maybe not all at the same time, all the balls in the air, but you're doing a great job in incredible work. I would love to hear more for sure. I'm going to make Autumn watch Homeland because that was my favorite show. No, it was so amazing and inspiring to talk to you. I mean, just reading over like the list of things you've done. It's, it's truly like incredible. Oh, thank you. But listen, I was really, I was more excited about this than I was like the other like news things that I usually do. So this was awesome. I think it's, I feel really honored that I got asked to, you know, come and and speak with you guys and and going back to my alma mater. So you just let me know whatever I can do. I'm I'm happy to help, but this was truly an honor. And thanks for these awesome questions. You stumped me on a couple of them. So that was good stuff. Interviewing skills, Autumn. Thank you.